Hello everyone and welcome to Refugee Realities, a thought-provoking podcast series produced by the MSC students in the Forced Displacement and Refugees course in the LSE Department of International Development. We're your hosts, Natalie Katnack and I'm Maria Jose Maldonado. And we are thrilled to bring you this special series in celebration of Refugee Week UK. During this series, we will delve into diverse realities faced by forcibly displaced individuals, exploring the policies, experiences, and initiatives that aim to support and empower refugees. Join us as we engage in enlightening conversations with guests from local organizations here in London, as well as international NGOs and institutions. In today's episode, we will be discussing climate-related displacement and protection. Climate change and environmental degradation have caused severe issues, including a vast impact on refugees and forced migration. Given this growing threat and key issue, we want to explore how organizations can and should respond to this. These questions will allow us to explore the overall problem and its consequences, the legal insufficiencies, the potential responses or lack thereof of humanitarian organizations, and how can we respond to these risks. Today we have the pleasure of discussing this with Mr. Manuel Marquez Pereira. He is the head of division of Migration, Environment and Climate Change and Risk Reduction at the International Organization for Migration, IOM-UN. Thank you very much for joining us today in our Refugee Realities podcast. I want to start off the conversation by just asking how have ecological threats and climate change impact become security risks for refugees uh, and how has this changed over the past years and decades? Well, um, one of the, the big challenges of these, not only for refugees, but also for uh, displaced persons, the, the common citizen in many cities, in many countries that are at risk, is in essence the forcible, the forced component of the movement by persecution or by force majeure creates a lot of protection risks for individuals because they will no longer be able to access their social protection networks. They won't be able to access the services and the resources that they are used to. So it will strive the communities and the individuals much beyond what is um, feasible, right? Especially when they cross borders and they have an absence of um, understanding or an absence of space to be part of the services that they would need. We already see when there is displacement that services are interrupted, people lose their identities, there is a bit of disconnect between them and the state, so the the social contract uh, that the citizenship offers is broken, but to migrants and refugees, this social contract may not be there because the state may not be willing to avail those services and extend those rights to individuals. Climate will exacerbate, above all, uh, these these pressures on people and will strive resources even more. So at least from the International Organization for Migrations, we are very concerned with this lack of framing to access rights. And I think that's the big gap. And what we'll see in the future is that disasters, vulnerabilities will compound and create a, um, a forced mobility that will be very hard for humanitarians or for governments to address. Thank you. 
Yes, thank you so much. Um, following up on this, um, there's a lot of uh, debate about climate and its relation to migration. So we wanted to know from your perspective, what are the difficulties of disentangling climate as a direct factor of migration? Mm -hmm. and what are the challenges brought on by this complex uh, relationship? So I, I want to make two points because I think these two points are the most important points on this conversation. One is migration for climate will not be different from any other migration, right? It's a compounded decision by an individual that climate will exacerbate uh, the, the, the decision or, or will, uh, let's say, compound different elements to, 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 to that put a, a person in a position of making a decision that may be unsafe or may be safe. And these individual choice and these compounding factors are the first thing that is important to understand. There is no direct link between migration and climate change. Climate change is a, a threat multiplier and is an exacerbator of vulnerabilities that compounded may lead to the decision to move. That's the first point. The second point that we in IOM believe is that everyone should be entitled to make decisions about their mobility. And, and this means that people need to be safe, empowered, and informed so that these decisions are beneficial for them, for their communities, on origin, and on arrival. And this means that they, if people are to move, they need the pathways to do so. And this is nothing new. The states already agreed with this within the Global Compact for Migration. And the only thing that needs to be done is to strengthen the migration pathways that the Objective 5 of the GCM already enshrines. It works for climate, it works for any other reason. And as long as these pathways exist, people can move safely and, and we can provide support and information for this move to be safe. On the other hand, we also believe that people should be entitled to stay. And, and when I say stay is within the vicinity of their places of origin, right? We, we see migration, not only international migration, but also internal migration. And what we want to make sure is that in both cases, people have the pathways to do so. But if people don't want to move, they should be able to have the same conditions to stay in their areas of origin. What we want to avoid at all costs is displacement that puts people in extreme protection risks or irregular migration that puts people in even worse uh, protection risks. And so the spirit of investing uh, in the Global Compact of Migration, Objective 5, strengthening migration pathways will deliver the way for people to use mobility as a good adaptation strategy or, and above all, a choice that they make in an informed way. Thank you so much uh, for strengthening those two points. Yes, this actually relates super well into our next point. So now looking at responses, how has the IOM reacted to climate-related displacement? And what about the nexus between climate security and migration in general? So in relation to displacement, it's very easy. IOM has been doing climate displacement or disaster displacement for many years. Uh, I will insist that, um, and we call this environmental migration is displacement. Uh, at, at large, uh, all, all displacement is force, right? This notion of force displacement, that doesn't exist. All displacement is a force movement that people are compelled to do by states or 
on the reasons of force majeure. IOM is actually the global custodian of what we call the camp management and camp coordination cluster of the humanity architecture globally. Unfortunately, the name is horrible. I know. Uh, I, I would much prefer that it be the um, displacement management cluster. And we are the custodians for disasters. And UNHCR is the custodian for conflict. And within this role, we have to help states to be better prepared to handle displacement when it happens, to during that process understand the vulnerabilities and work to mitigate displacement and have the capacities if displacement happens to support people not during, during displacement, but also on solutions to address that displacement and resolve that displacement. And this is pretty much what is the operational space of IOM, contingency planning, preparedness, systems, buildings, so that countries are able to understand the problem and have the machinery that is needed to manage displacement. From that point, work with them on disaster risk reduction and adaptation to make sure that these vulnerabilities that would lead people to displacement are reduced so less people are placed in a displacement situation, then if there is, of course, a shock, support communities with protection and services while they are displaced and manage the information needs and the operational coordination for the response to these individuals to arrive and start working with governments and all partners, including the private sector and the development actors to create durable solutions so that this, this displacement can end and people can resume their lives with a bit of, how to say, trust <laughs> and, and optimism that this is a new path and they will be less exposed to a new displacement. I will make parentheses on preventive displacement, which is what I call pendular movements in the places where individual safety cannot be guaranteed because the, the housing system is not good or the conditions are extreme, evacuation, preventive displacement, in which means people move from their areas of residence to a safe space and then back as much as possible. This is a form of displacement we need to accept as positive because it saves lives. It shouldn't happen, but the trajectory of development of, of many countries that are extremely vulnerable does not allow uh, protection and, and, and assistance and safety at household level. It needs to be in a community level. So within the climate change conversation, the early warnings for roll call of the Secretary General, the agenda on displacement of the Secretary General are two ways to enable this relation and keep working on this. I don't want to enter into too many details uh, unless you, you want me to, but I just wanted to give a flavor of, of this, this perspective because it above all should be, and that's a deep conviction of IOM, no one should be displaced, right? Displacement is uh, an extreme event that should only be taken in case of trying to save lives lives preemptively and should be of the shortest duration and on the safest conditions as possible. No, this is great. This really helps us understand just options for responses and responses by organizations. So thank you. Indeed, thanks so much. Uh, it was very interesting in particular to hear you mention um, the private sector. Can you please explain us further how, um, how can they play a role and how does IOM collaborate with them? 
well, the private the private sector has a role because the private sector offers uh, already services, right? The economy of the countries is not an artificial system; it's based on the private sector. So the private sector is it's not only affected by disasters, but it contributes to make markets. Uh, having the availability of the items and the services that people need to resume their life. One of the things that we see when there is a disaster, there's a, a collapse on the economic and opportunities that take time. So we also see that the private sector needs to be stronger, more prepared to address uh, risks. See this comprehensive risk management that emanates from the Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction is important. Um, one of the other ways that the private sector can contribute is in many times the, the, the growing expansion of financial services that come through electronic means. The, the states do not have the capacity to do this, but when the economies are moving to digital and you have these, for example, uh, portable wallets, right, the cash wallets, this makes it much easier to, to have financial services arrive to individuals that are displaced so that they can benefit and make the choices about the assistance they should receive. So there's different ways in which the private sector can support, including, including as I said, creating the resilience in their businesses so that they are up and running if after a disaster as soon as possible, because that will help complement the assistance needed for communities. Thank you very much for that. Indeed, they can play an essential role, and uh, so can several actors that um, that we do not think of right away. Uh, but indeed, thanks so much for reinforcing this uh, this stakeholder community. Yes, absolutely. And so, looking forward a little bit, whether that's private sector, public sector, states, or all of the above, how can we focus on prevention and resilience enhancement to support communities? So one of the, the most important things is, is let's say, uh, how to say this, risk literacy. I don't know if this is actually um, a term that we can, we can coin or if it is, but it's risk literacy. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the risks that science and the best science available through the International Panel of Climate Change has shown to us, and of course other uh, science about the risks of disasters, we know what is to come. Uh, what we need to make sure is that communities are informed about what is to come so that collectively we can support them on making better choices. And this is not only in terms of the day-to-day -day life, but also in terms of infrastructure. The big development tickets of many countries need to be, as IPC says, climate resilient development. It's not doing a project of infrastructures for what is happening today. It's doing a project of infrastructure to the, to, to the place how the place will be tomorrow. And that means resources management, conservation of nature, water protection, uh, issues with slow onset events like sea level rise or rapid onset events. If you're building things in floodplains, how health services can be have their buildings better and stronger so that they are open after a shock or uh, roads, uh, electricity. So all of that developmental part needs to be much stronger. Uh, 
then we need to also strengthen the capacity of individuals to be prepared at household level to cope with these disasters. In places where the housing infrastructure is secure, people stay home, there is a little bit more ease on certain elements. This is a generalization, it does not apply to all the risks, right? A person that has a cement house on a slope is at risk of a landslide. That, that's, that, that, that's risk there. But at large, people need to be better prepared. They need to have oh, the understanding if a phenomenon is coming, they need to safeguard their assets, they need to safeguard their legal documents because those legal documents will then allow them to engage with governments on the delivery of services or the reception of services. There's measures that people can take to have less damages in their property and safeguard their lives. And this needs to be seen in the context of their surroundings. So in certain places, this will work at household level. In other places, this needs to be this collective service, uh, evacuation centers, safety centers that will have to, to work. And, and this logic of understanding risk and placing this risk understanding across the different elements of life is very important. We, we forgot, I'm Portuguese, right? When I was in school, we did a lot of exercises and all the books had, you need to have candles, canned tuna, a radio, batteries, and a pair of clothes in your house in case of an earthquake. That disappeared somehow in the last 30 years, 40 years, that disappeared from the books. And it's a pity because at any time things can happen. And I think more and more, we need to think outside of just these earthquake things. We are seeing more heat waves. So people need to have salts for uh, hydration, they need to have water stored, they need to have uh, sunscreen, they need to have a series of uh, a medical kit, let's say, to help them with that. When we are designing cities, we need to create safe spaces and shaded areas and areas where people can take refuge from these smoke waves and from these uh, heat waves. So there's many different forms depending on the threat and the risk that people can take and states have the collective responsibility to overarching then have mechanisms for these two. Sorry, I, I sometimes get a little bit too technical. I don't know if this is what you want, but... Uh... No, this is absolutely great. I think risk literacy is a great way to put it. Uh, and thank you for the explanation of that. I think it helps us just start to investigate how communities can understand the context of their risks, um, or rather just the context of their situations, also looking at their options. Uh, and this is often the first step in effective responses. So I think this is a great way to explain it. Thank you. I can give you one more example if you want, because I just Please. remember a bit. The perception of risk is very different for people, right? A couple of months ago, no, a couple of months ago, last year, <laughs> last year, here I interviewed a community where I had worked before in Bangladesh and I was discussing with them risk management and I was discussing with them evacuation. And when I asked the lady, um, what is the threshold, right? When, when do you evacuate? Is the government calls you? Uh, you go by yourself and she says, no, the government calls, but uh, I have my own measure because of my house. If the water is below my knees, I stay home and send the children. And if the water is up to here, then I go to the evacuation shelter, right? So 
<laughs> how people understand risk and if someone has water up to here on the middle of a cyclone, I think that is quite complicated. But it's understandable because she's trying to stay home to preserve the sparse assets that she has in an attempt not to resume from zero when she starts, right? It's not incorrect. It's just the reality that she has to live and we need to find ways to support them on their terms, on their conditions, on their needs. And that's why sometimes things are a bit complicated. No, absolutely. So there's a risk literacy on their side, but also just a big context understanding and um, from the organization side and responses. Thank you for that example. That was very helpful. Yes, I completely agree. And actually you answered our next question, which was about how to support uh, local communities and local approaches. And you just emphasized how essential it is. And I think you also reinforced once again that collaboration is one of the key points that uh, we need to understand and also to, to well, operate, to implement, definitely. So thank you very much for that. Um, we want to ask now if you have any Final notes for the people that are will be listening to us. Um, anything else that you want to emphasize, examples you want to illustrate, please, uh, the floor is yours now for some uh, ending note. Thank you. Now, I would just summarize in the end um, that for the International Organization for Migrations, the key emphasis on this discussion about climate change is individual choice about mobility. Everyone has the right to make choices about their mobility, and we stand ready to support communities, individuals, and governments to make those, those choices in a safe and informed way. We want to make sure that mobility is used in a positive way, and when people do not want to use mobility, we should not arrive to a point where people have to suffer displacement and become a humanitarian subject, right? We need to give, it will happen, but we need to give to as many people as we can, the resources, the information, the mechanisms that they are in charge of how that mobility is done and when. And as long as it's voluntary, as long as it's safe, it will be beneficial for the community, or at least we'll have a protective space that is beneficial for the individual. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No, thank you. It was a pleasure listening to you. And um, once again, thank you very much for making the time, especially um, that we know that you are currently in conferences. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm sure the people listening will also appreciate it. Um, and thank you for stressing one of the main points of course, will be that forced migration in any form will require an urgent response. Um, we need to make sure that we understand the risks and at different levels as well. And that requires for us also to understand that everyone and every actor can play an essential role. Therefore, collaboration is one of the main things that we need to continue um, implementing in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.